This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. A man may put a great charge of powder into a gun for the purpose of ascertaining whether it is strong and can stand the test. Or he may do it for the purpose of ascertaining whether it is weak. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon was preached by John A. Broaddus in the 1890s in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Joel, the name John Broaddus uh, came up in the news in June. During the nation's discussion on race relations, the president of the SBC, J.D. Greer, suggested retiring a gavel that has been used and has his name uh, on it due to his relationship with the Confederacy and the SBC. This episode is not a response to that. This sermon was recorded in May, and to be honest, we did not know this was an issue until we started to do research on this person. If this bothers you, if you do not want to listen to a sermon by someone like that, we just wanted to make sure you were aware of this and did not think that we at Revive Thoughts were trying to make a statement or a jab of any kind. This is a sermon that he preached on temptation, and we think that the content of the sermon is excellent. And we've had a number of people on our show that have problematic histories. George Whitfield, John Winthrop, Jean Gerson, among many others. Yeah, I know you've heard me say it on the show before, but we believe that God can use imperfect people, flawed people, to still communicate good truths and still do great things. John Broaddus, uh, he was a man that was born in Virginia in 1827. He was educated at home to a family that was not very wealthy, but had enough money to buy books and afford teaching, so better off than many. Most of his teaching came from his uncle. There's a story that he was coming home one day from learning, schooling at, at his uncle's place, and his dad asked him why he had come home early that day, and Broaddus said that my uncle has no more use for me. And so his dad went to his uncle and said, what is he, what is he talking about? And his uncle said, he's right, there's, there's, there's nothing left for me to teach him. I have taught him everything I know. So we have a situation where he's not, he's not a prodigy. Like a lot of the people that we have on this show, sometimes they just fly and you can just they have a knack for understanding theology and, and thriving. He's not one of those. He's not a prodigy, but he's also not behind either. Uh, at the age of 16, he was at this revival, and a friend of his who knew that Broadus had never really accepted or claimed to be a Christian, um, despite having a religious upbringing, his friend challenges him and says, why don't you just believe in the promise of this text? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will in no way cast them out. And that's the very verse he challenges him and said, will you just believe that? He said when he accepted and believed that promise, everything changed. And he began to serve the church. He wanted to start preaching. He felt really suddenly just alive spiritually from that moment on. Ironically, though, he, as a man who never went to school, he spent two years as a teacher after that. He spent time studying independently on his own. Uh, he was really determined to learn Greek by himself. And he said that it was exhausting, but he just he felt called to do it. He enjoyed doing it. Now, he never had a plan really to become a preacher. He really he thought about it, but he's like, no, I don't want to be a preacher. I, I want to be a doctor. But one day, at another one of these meetings at the church, the pastor said something like, every sacrifice and work would be worth the work if you help just one soul come to know the Lord. Everything will be worth it from that moment on. And Broadus said, just hearing it said like that through tears, he just, he's, I'm not going to be a doctor. No, I, I think I need to be a minister, actually. 
Yeah, he became the pastor of a church there in Virginia in the late 1850s, and he would keep close ties to the school that he graduated from, the University of Virginia. In 1849, he married his first wife, Maria, but about eight years later, she would pass away, and he would remarry a woman named Charlotte, and they were together for the rest of his life. Just before the American Civil War broke out, John Broaddus and James Boise and others went on to found the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Broaddus had wrestled with the idea of being a professor there because he really loved preaching. Initially, he didn't want to be a teacher because he wanted to focus on his preaching, but he would eventually teach there and he would find a home uh, doing so because he was the New Testament professor there for 36 years. And it's, it's kind of just an aside for a moment, but Joel and I, we both went to Bible college. We had teachers that had been there for 20 or 30 years. Those people just become parts almost of that institution. So if you've ever been at a school where one guy is just teaching that one class, he has a huge effect. So Broadus, that was a big deal to be there, especially at the beginning. Now, Broadus does have a troubled history with race relations, as we mentioned at the top of the show. He, along with other founders of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, did own slaves. He served also as the chaplain to Robert E. Lee in the Confederate Army. In 1882, Broadus did repudiate America's reputation with slavery, as did the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in 1883, he delivered a speech on the Confederate cause in the South, and he basically asked Americans to unite, uh, to recognize that both sides had reasons for the fight, but that they it was time to move on and it was over. He was, throughout his tenure, offered many pastorships, professorships, and positions throughout America, both in the North and the South, and actually throughout the world. It would seem that his positions after the Civil War ended cooled, and a lot of uh, people were trying to take to heart what I think was Abraham Lincoln's words, which was, with malice towards none, trying to move on from that conflict and, and put it behind them. Despite the offers throughout his career, Broadus felt called to help the struggling Southern Baptist Theological Seminary get going. He's quoted as saying, perhaps the seminary may die, but let us resolve to die first. He was determined, and over the years, the seminary got its feet. It, it became more established. He would become the second president of the university, serving, serving from 1888 until his death in 1895. This man who was taught by his uncle growing up, right? He became one of the most established prestigious men uh, in Bible colleges in America. That's true. He would give the Beecher lectures at Yale in 1889, and he would end up writing textbooks on how to preach that are still being used in classrooms today. We haven't even really gotten to this part of him yet, but it's actually probably the most important part, especially for us as Revive Thoughts, that his preaching, Charles Spurgeon called him the greatest of the living preachers. Another man said, it has been my fortune to hear Beecher, uh, Phillips Brooks, McLaren, Joseph Parker, and Spurgeon, John Hall and Moody, John Clifford and David Lloyd George. But at his best and in the congenial atmosphere, Broadus was the equal of any of these men that I have ever heard. This is high praise. During a time period with some of the most amazing preachers alive, we've talked about how this era from 1850 to 1900 is just the, the gold standard of preaching. And even more amazing when you remember he was not actually a preacher. He was a professor who would get called in to preach sometimes and do conventions sometimes. His style was to study the scriptures. He knew the text. He would prepare some notes in case he lost his place. Uh, but then he would preach what's called extempore. 
extempore, he would preach without looking at the notes and go usually one or two verses of the text uh, throughout the entire sermon. His sermons were called simple, but they weren't simple in that they were just not worth your time. He would try to do all the intellectual heavy lifting, the understanding of the text, the Greek, and all that beforehand for hours and hours so that by the time he got to preach it, he could make it so that even a child could listen to it and understand the deep concepts of God. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. In this sermon, it's titled Lessons for the Tempted. We see him talking about temptation in a way that I don't think we see too often. Temptation, temptation, I feel, is often looked at as a chore or something that believers wrestle with, but Broadus almost describes it as a test that believers need to pass, have to pass, and he's hopeful that believers will pass that test. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13 Here is a text which speaks to our needs. Although temptation comes, we do not understand it and are often not prepared for it. Through Paul, God is giving us guidance to help us. There are four points suggested by the text in regards to temptation. 1. We recognize here that God suffers us to be tempted. God is faithful. He will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Then God suffers us to be tempted. This is a distinction which does not amount to a great deal, I confess, and yet which is useful and helps us somewhat in relieving the dark mystery of evil in this world. It is that God permits evil of which he is not the author. We shrink back with horror from the idea of regarding him as the author of evil. We cannot believe it. And it helps us a little to think that God permits evil of which he is not the author. He suffers us to be tempted. The Apostle James says that God tempts no man. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does he tempt any man. The word tempt, as you all know, and the same thing is true of the words in the original language, signifies to test, to put to the test. Just as when you test a gun, this testing may be done with a good or an evil design. A man may put a great charge of powder into a gun for the purpose of ascertaining whether it is strong and can stand the test. 
or he may do it for the purpose of ascertaining whether it is weak, for the purpose of destroying it. So human character may be tested with friendly feelings to try its strength, or with hostile feelings in order to show its weakness and to destroy it. In the bad sense of the term, God tempts nobody, but he suffers us to be tempted. Will we inquire why he does this? We might say that temptation is one of the conditions of existence in this world. We cannot see how it would be possible to live here without being tempted. Jesus Christ himself, who was sinless, who came into this world to live but a little while and to die, endured temptation. And not once merely, but many times tempted to do what was wrong in the desert. Tempted in the garden to shrink back from what he had undertaken to do. Temptation is a condition of our existence. Moreover, temptation is a discipline. That is one of the reasons why we may say God permits us to be tempted. Here again we have the example of Jesus. We are told in the epistle to the Hebrews that Jesus learned from what he suffered. His human nature needed discipline like ours, and it found discipline and temptation as we do. He learned from what he suffered, and thus being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation. And that ends our first point. God suffers us to be tempted. Now the second point, we should be afraid of temptation. Let him that thinks he stands take heed so he does not fall. There are two forms of peril against which we need to caution ourselves. It is a perilous thing to question the reality and the power of temptation. Why, my friends, if there is such a being as Satan, if he has such designs against us and against God, as the scriptures plainly declare, then what could please him better than that men should deny his existence? What could help him more? But I said there were two forms of peril. If it is perilous that we should be careless about temptation, its reality and its power, it is especially perilous that we should feel a self-confident presumption that we can overcome it. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Ah, a man who is afraid he will fall may perhaps take care. But a man who thinks he stands will seldom take heed. The third point in the text is that we must not excuse ourselves when we are tempted. We must not excuse ourselves with the idea that it is impossible to resist temptation. We must not imagine that we have nothing to do with it and that temptation comes as a power from outside us and presses in upon us. We are not that helpless. Temptation becomes temptation to us only as something within us rises up to meet the allurement. James tells us, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. He is seduced by his own soul's desire, and only his own soul's desire leads him to sin. The power from outside us may be mighty, and yet the man is a free man and yields to temptation only when something within him goes forth to meet that which comes from outside. But it is so common a thing to imagine we cannot help giving in to temptation. It is not impossible to resist temptation. At any rate, we do not resist. It is our fault. If we really do not have the power to resist, this may be only as a punishment for having failed to resist in other days when we might have done so. Again, we must not excuse ourselves as we are so often inclined to do, with the idea that our temptations are especially hard. There is no temptation given to you, says the apostle, but that which is common to man. 
Yet how very common is the notion that our trials and our temptations are certainly the most peculiar and the hardest to bear that any poor wretched human being has ever had to face. It seems to be a universal human tendency. You cannot help thinking that people whose character is very different from yours, whose surroundings are different, do not have strong temptations. Of course, special forms of temptation are mightier to one person and less mighty to another. But take the sum total, and if we saw things as the high angels see them, if we saw things as God saw them, we would never declude ourselves with this dream. Finally, trusting in God, we can conquer temptation. For God will help us, the text implies, both by His providence and by His grace. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able to bear, but will with the temptation also make the way of escape, so that you may be able to bear it. My friends, God has often done that for us already. If you have advanced far enough in life to see the meaning of your past, can you not look back and see how, when God's providence brought you into temptation, there has also been provided the way of escape? That is what the text implies that he will do for us if we trust in him, the faithful God. If while enlightened by his word and seeking his grace to guide us, we meet with temptation, there will be somewhere, somehow, a door open that we may escape. Oh, blessed be God that he is controlling all these mighty forces of evil which move around us, so that the temptations themselves sometimes counteract one another. The more we are tempted, the more we are safe sometimes. Ah! When we are sorely tempted, God will not fail to open the way of escape if we have a heart to seek for it and a soul that longs to find it. Not only by His providence, but by His grace, God will help us in our temptation. If strengthened by God's grace, if filled with a hatred, a mortal hatred of sin, we struggle against it, then we will trample temptation underfoot. We will know the discipline of character which comes from temptation conquered. Happy is the man, says the Apostle James that endures temptation, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those that love him. Therefore, he said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into temptations. If we trust God's providential help and his gracious spirit, then we can see how temptation may be the means of making us better. And rising up in grateful joy and trust, we may rejoice with James knowing that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. But let steadfastness have its full effect, that we may be perfect and whole, lacking in nothing. If any man lacks wisdom, wisdom to take these wholesome views of temptation, wisdom to find the way out of temptation, wisdom to see the meanings of temptation and gain its lessons, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously, and it will be given to him. My brethren, I ask not today for you or for us that we may have a life without trial and temptation. I would be afraid to ask it. For whom the Lord loves, he chastises, and it is the law of earthly existence that we will be tempted. But I humbly ask for myself and for you that we may have grace to help us watch and strive against temptation, grace to trample it underfoot, and grace to conquer it.
Yeah, for me, temptation is just this thing we have to deal with in life. It's it's kind of like a hassle. It gets in the way of stuff. It's a distraction from things we need to do for God, right? And, you know, we usually we, we work really hard. Maybe we pass. Sometimes we compromise. It's just this big thing we have to deal with that's just part of our sinful nature and fleshly way, right? But broad is kind of provided this other side of it too that I really never thought of. There's this idea of there's actually a reward for withstanding the temptation. And and when we come through that temptation, we are made stronger for it. We are better believers because we held our ground for God. And this idea really shows that even the tough things in life, they serve a purpose in God that even though we're stuck so often, I'm like, oh, I'm just stuck as a human. I can't wait till I'm done with this life. I'm no longer a sinner, stuck in a sinner's body. And yet, Broadus kind of gives me this perspective that like, well, yeah, but you can actually get a reward here and now by becoming a stronger Christian by withstanding those temptations. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Justin Ray. Justin Ray is a data analyst from North Georgia. He currently owns and operates soundandworship.com. Soundandworship.com is a website designed to point Christians to great and solid worship music. He is married to his wife, Annabeth, and has a one-year-old son named Silas. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts. We hope it encourages you and challenges you in your faith. We want to also encourage you, if you're looking for more uh, Revived Thinking, looking for more of our shows, we have a daily show. comes out every day for two to three minutes long. It goes over the devotionals and thoughts that will help you get started in the morning, we imagine. Uh, we have seven different preachers that we work through, men like D.L. Moody, Oswald Chambers, Jonathan Edwards, Richard Baxter, and others. And we highly encourage you get Revived Devos, the Revived Devos podcast in your app subscribe to it every single day you'll have a little thought from them and it's a great way to get started in the morning yeah little little two to three minute devotionals just to kind of start your day off absolutely this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts this week on the truce podcast i talk with caitlin Shess, author of the liturgy of politics we discuss christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.